Before the break, we did review the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26, that we say that unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ, that is the Church of Christ. And so that message puts upon all believers certain responsibilities. The first responsibility is that you should recognize the unity and the diversity in the body of Christ. That you also means that you recognize this, recognizing that the church is not to be of a uniform persons or individuals. There's no uniformity. Now, so we also indicated then that based on all that the apostles then move on to begin dealing with some of these uh, responsibilities in a different way, which is this, the, the, the fact that our second responsibility is that we should understand or that you should focus on facts presented regarding the members of the Church of Christ. That is the focus of what we are looking at in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 19. Now, because of the sentence of verse 14, it says, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So, based on that, we, that's why we develop the uh, responsibility of the believer, knowing that uh, he has a responsibility of taking care or understanding the reality of the fact that the Church of Christ will have several members. That will be the first fact to remember, that the Church of Christ consists of several members. And so, we indicated, we spent some time to indicate that verse 14, or explain that verse 14 is an emphatic explanation by the apostle of the necessity of the, that unity and diversity in the body of Christ. Now, so we went from that, we looked at the fact that uh, the apostle had used two conjunctions in verse 14 that we spent some time to explain, but in the end we came out with the fact that it is you, those combinations are used for emphasis, emphatic explanation. Now we have also then reviewed the meaning of the Greek word translated body in this passage that we're studying. And so we went through all that in order to focus on the fact that we're looking at the second fact that we should be uh, focused on in terms of understanding. And that second fact is that no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. So the first one, first fact, the church consists of several members. The second, no member can be separated from the body of Christ. This is derived from that sentence of verse 15, where it says the, uh, that the, at least uh, the foot should not say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. So we began to look at the uh, Greek word that is translated hand in in all of this before the break, but we did indicate that one of the meanings of the Greek word is, is really the meaning wrist, wrist, where uh, handcuffs or chains are placed on somebody under arrest, and that's the way we say it was used for Apostle Peter when the angel freed him from jail, as we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 7, and that's where we begin our second session. I hold on to Acts chapter 12. I'm going to pick another verse there. Acts chapter 12 verse 7 reads, 
Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get out. He said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now that sentence, the chains fell off Peter's wrists, is literally, his chains fell from off his hands. So the, uh, the Greek word we're looking at may mean control, as that is the sense that Peter also used it to describe the lost deliverance from prison in the same Acts 12. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 reads, Then Peter said to himself and, and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. They were anticipating him being killed just like he has killed James. Now the phrase Herod's clutches may alternatively be translated Herod's control or Herod's grasp. Although, literally the Greek says Herod's hand. Now the word hand is used figuratively for power, especially of God as it is used in the prayer of the early church as they acknowledge God's working out, his purpose and plan in Acts chapter 4 verse 28. Acts chapter 4 verse 28. It is they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now that phrase, your power, is literally your hand. But, so hand can refer to power and so on. So anyway, the reason we mentioned the figurative usages of the word hand is to convey that although the apostle used literal hand in the conditional statement he presented, but the focus is really on the members of the body of Christ. That's the focus. Thus, the implication of what he said is that just because one member does not have miraculous power, for example, as the other does not mean that that person is not in the body of Christ, as that is what we can draw from the clause of 1 Corinthians 12, 15, that was studying, reads, I do not belong to the body. You can say that. Now, by the way, this clause, although used in connection with the analogy the apostle used, implies that no believer should think the person does not belong to the body of Christ because of having different spiritual gifts than another believer. The apostle indicates that the foot could claim not to be a part of the body, but that does not make it to be true. As in the last clause of 1 Corinthians 12, 15, look at the last clause, it says, it will not for the, that reason cease to be part of the body. There is, of course, a, a question as to how this clause is to be punctuated in the Greek text. Now, some of our Greek Text punctuate it as an affirmation. Now, this approach is reflected in the translation of the NIV and many of our English versions. Now, other Greek uh, texts punctuate the clause as involving rhetorical question that literally translates something like this. Now, because of this, is it not of the body? That's a question. Now, some of our English versions, such as the Common English Bible, followed uh, the Greek text that portrayed the clause as a rhetorical question. So, the Common English Bible reads this way. Does that mean it is not part of the body? That's just a question. Now, nonetheless, the question of how to portray the Greek 
text does not really affect the intended meaning of what the apostle wanted us to, uh, to understand. Thus, it really does not matter how it is punctuated in the Greek and consequently translated in the English. The rhetorical question, when answered properly, yields the same affirmative statement found in those Greek texts that punctuate the sentence to reflect an affirmation. Now, so by the way, the apostle used a strong negative in the Greek to convey that the claim of the foot can never be true, since the word not used in, uh, once in the translation of the NIV, although the word really is used twice in the literal translation, that word not is translated from a Greek word that's an objective genitive, denying the reality of an alleged fact fully and absolutely in contrast to another Greek uh, particle, negative particle, that's its subjective negative, implying something either hypothetical or conditional something. In other words, those kind of negative when a person says no it means persuade me. But the other one no means the door shut, can can change it. Does the apostle state then strongly what the foot could potentially claim as not being a part of the body as something impossible? That's the way he used that word not. It's just impossible. In effect, the foot is already a part of the body. And there's no way of undoing that reality. Now, I want you to understand what I just said, the analogy. Because that's going to figure in in our application. It, you know, the foot is a part of your body. You cannot do it. It's a reality. You cannot do it. Now, bear that in mind because we're going to apply that as we go, uh, continue our study. So, in any case, the apostle continued with his analogy that involves the parts of the human body that are smaller than the ones he used in verse 15. The smaller parts of the body. Remember I said he used four parts, four body parts. Now the foot and the hand as parts of the body are larger in size than the two parts the apostle mentioned or that he used in verse 16. Now but before we uh, get to the smaller parts of the body that the apostle used in verse 16, it is worth noting that since the apostle was concerned about members of the body of Christ, that his choice of going from larger parts to smaller parts is intended in the overall scheme of his teaching to deal with the sense of insecurity that believers may face. But the larger part, the smaller part. He did that with that in mind. Sense of insecurity. Now there are those who may be considered important in the local church represented by the foot and hand as well as those who think they are unimportant represented by the smaller parts of the body that the apostle mentioned in verse 16. Now both groups are prone to a sense of insecurity. In other words, those that are represented by the large who think they are important. And those who are not. Both are open to insecurity. A feeling of insecurity. Now you can observe this phenomenon of feeling insecurity in the world that we live in with those who are highly placed in life. Now some of us think that only the poor and those who are less fortunate in terms of things of this world have a sense of insecurity. But that's not true. The powerful and the wealthy have a sense of insecurity probably worse than those who are less placed in the society. They have more. People don't realize that. Well, to me, this accounts 
for the behavior of some of the powerful is a sense of insecurity. They don't realize that. Uh, because, you know, people are so shallow, they, have, you know, they don't know anything really from the scripture. So their labor knows. So whatever they see, they take it for the first, uh, first value. They don't think critically. They evaluate something. And so people don't realize, yes, they're powerful. They are feel full of sense of insecurity. Now it is because of this sense of insecurity that many dictators who are very powerful, they, they are very brutal, very brutal. And that they do everything they can to ensure they remain in power. That's a sense of insecurity. So they will do anything as uh, uh, being dictators. So in fact, the very hint of a rivalry, they will kill such a person. Now, see, that, of course, you think about Herod's attempt to kill the baby Jesus. Why? He felt threatened because those magi told him, was why he star of a new king born. He's a powerful king in his room, but now he gets threatened. He, you know, fell into that sense of insecurity. So, he thought he could exterminate the Lord Jesus Christ, something impossible anyway. So, really I'm saying to you that the feeling of insecurity is not limited to the less privileged in society. Men feel insecure. Women feel insecure. That is a fact. And all of those come from what? They have knowledge of truth. I mean, you see, a a woman is insecure with the marriage because of some things she doesn't quite believe in her mind. And a man is insecure maybe about his job or about whatever it is. It's all because somebody doesn't have a grasp of some truth. If you have a grasp of truth, you never feel insecure about things in this life. Now you take, for example, if you believe God controls everything, what are you insecure about? Oh, your husband is going to leave you? Oh yeah, let him go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. God is in control of everything. If he, if he lets him go, that means that's a plan. So the thing is, there is a sense of insecurity floating around. And I don't think it's limited to a few people. You can get into that if you're not careful. All you need is let your mind wander a little bit here and there. And before you know it, there are many thoughts that will come inside your mind and start feeling insecure. Whatever, you, whatever it is that causes you to be that. Hence, really, it is probably the case that even those who are looked upon as important in a local church, may also have their struggles with the sense of insecurity of their position in the church of Christ. Thus then, the apostle probably was thinking of the sense of feeling of insecurity believers feel regardless of how others view them in the local church that he used his analogy of larger parts of the body first, then proceeded to the smaller parts of the body. Now the first part, or the first small part of the body, the apostle used is the ear. The ear, that's the first small part. Now the ear, no doubt, is smaller than the foot that the apostle used in verse 15. Oh, you say, I'm insignificant. However, the apostle is still concerned with indicating that even the smaller part of the body could not be separated from it that he again he again used a claim of an event that is unlikely to occur as in the first conditional clause of first Corinthians twelve verse sixteen where it reads and if the ear should say 
and if the ear, the small organ, ear. Now the apostle states what in reality cannot happen. The ear is an auditory organ of the body, so it's incapable of speaking. But the apostle uses it to convey what is unlikely to happen. So anyway, the apostle states that the ear could claim that would, or whatever you claim, that would not happen. As we read in the next clause of 1 Corinthians 12, 16, it says, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Now you see that he's setting up, that's why I introduced it, he's setting up this sense of insecurity. But again, as I say, and I mean this, and of course you should take it seriously too. Check yourself carefully. Be very careful that you don't fall into the trap of feeling insecure about anything. I don't care what it is. That gets you into trouble all the time and makes you act irrational anyway. So here, the ear, you know, what the apostle is saying, can say, oh, I mean, it's significant. <laughs> anyway, anyway, the truth of the matter though is that the ear cannot carry out the function of the eye. Just as the eye could not carry out the function of the ear. Thus, it would would not make sense for the ear to claim not to be a part of the body because of its inability to carry out the function of the eye. Now that aside, the apostle continued to make the point that the claim of not being a part of the body by the ear because it could not function as the eye, is not true. It is this claim that is then stated in the last part of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 16. Look at it again, it says, It will not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Now, you see, the thing is, there are many things we all can claim that will make their truth. You can claim anything you want. doesn't mean it it is true. So this is what the apostle is saying here. He said, I'm not a part of You can claim all you want. It doesn't make it not to be true. If something's already true. That's what the apostle is in concern with here. So he said, you know, say, I'm not a part of the body because I'm, not, I'm already eye, I'm already ear. He said, you know, that, this kind of claim doesn't mean anything. Again, the issue, feeling of insecurity. Now the comments we made though, about the last uh, sentence of 1 Corinthians 12:15 is equally applicable to the last sentence of verse 16. Now, some Greek texts punctuate the last sentence as a rhetorical question, so that literally the Greek uh, translates into the English as, Is it not by this not of the body? A question. Now, some English versions, such as the Common English Bible, follow the Greek text that punctuate it as a question. So, this is the way it reads in that uh, English version. It reads, does that mean it's not part of the body? Now, other Greek texts punctuate the sentence as an affirmation. So, this approach is reflected in the NIV and many of our English versions that read read it will not for that reason, cease to be part of the body. Again, the anticipated answer to the rhetorical question says essentially the same thing as punctuating the text as an affirmation. Consequently, there's no difference in how the Greek sentence is punctuated. Nonetheless, the intent of the apostle is to convey that the claim of the ear is unattainable, since it is impossible for the ear not to be a part of the body of a person. That's what it is. It's impossible. Now, those confirming the second fact then, that should help you understand the importance of the unity and the diversity in the body of Christ, which is that no believer can be separated from the body 
of Christ. I says I'm not a part. It doesn't change the fact. It's a part of the body. He says it. It doesn't change the fact. So I'm insignificant. You can feel all the sense of insecurity you want. As a believer, it doesn't change the fact that you're a believer. You know, see, many times when you really sit down and you think a little bit about some of the things we do, we are torturing ourselves needlessly. That's what we do. We torture ourselves. Because we get into things. We think, overthink, or we underthink, or whatever it is. What you're doing is just torturing yourself. It doesn't change the reality with God. So why should we live in life torturing ourselves because of what we think, what we feel, you know? If somebody says something, you read 28 million into what he said. I mean, what he said is just one minute. But you have read all the other things and they are causing you so much stress, so much problem. Why? And this is one of the things I say. We can simplify our lives by knowing the scripture, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us. That will simplify our lives. So you don't go into that what if, what if. And if, if your mind is going to this area of insecurity or thinking, overthink, you just bring it down. Subject it under the word of God. And you'll be free. And live a, a peaceful life. Anyway, the sentence of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 15, where uh, it said, it will not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Repeated in verse 16, it's indeed the basis then for the second fact we stated. That is, no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. I'm going to emphasize that. It is important that you grasp that as a believer. Because when I'm talking about sense of insecurity, I use material things or physical things. But there are other more important ones. And that's the reason we're emphasizing this part. That you cannot, the body, uh, believers, can never be separated from the body of Christ. Now it is true that the sentence we're looking at is concerned with analogy that the apostle used in dealing with the matter of unity and diversity in the body of Christ. But it has an important application to the believer in Christ. The application is that the second fact is one of the assurance of the security of the salvation of the believer in Christ. Now, here is the thing. Remember what I'm focusing on. I say, you can think something you want to think and torture yourself with. It doesn't change the fact, whatever the fact happened to be. And that is what we are not going to apply. Because he said, the I cannot say, I'm not a part of the body because X, Y, Z. In the same way, you cannot say, if you are saved, you cannot say, well, I'm no longer a believer. Nonsense. That makes sense. If you are saved, now be very careful now. I put that word, if you are saved. I didn't say if you go to church. I didn't say if you get baptized. I said, if you are saved. Once you are saved, then you can sit down, relax. Spiritual, of course. That's what, going, that's what we're going to be applying. So, that's the application. You see, if a part of the body could never stop being a part of the body because of what it claims, then the application is that a believer who is a part of the body of Christ will never cease being part of his body. Never. Now it is interesting that it is after the apostle had explained how a believer becomes or comes to be in Christ through the baptism by the Holy Spirit that we considered in verse 13 that the apostle then provided this analogy using parts of the body that cannot stop being a part of the body regardless of what claim that, bo- uh, that part of the body makes. Remember, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, you take him, you place in Christ. Now, that's done. It didn't come from you. 
Don't confront me. Now how is that going to be undone? That's an issue. Insecurity can go anywhere you want to, but how are you going to undo that? That's what we're dealing with here. Anyway, so the conclusion of the apostle in this particular case, that is, it cannot happen. Uh, that conclusion is very important and helps us to understand its application. That's all I'm saying, the conclusion of the apostle making use of the analogy of body parts is the impossibility, of course, of a body part not being a part of the body. We can simply imply then that your salvation in Christ is secured regardless of whatever you feel or what factors that may come to bear on you. Again, when I made this kind of statement, because I'm absolute about it, I'm also equally absolute that I'm only talking to those who know with certainty that they have believed in Christ. Not, again, I say not because you, not even because you're here. Or you come here every Wednesday, Sunday, it doesn't mean that. You can do all that and not be saved. But you have to know with certainty that you're saved. Now, if you are saved, then you can go fall into what we're studying. It's not for those who are just, you know, playing church, as they say. Anyway, so we are saying that it's really impossible for a person that has been baptized into the body of Christ to ever not be a part of the body of Christ. Now, this is in keeping with the assertion of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul, of the impossibility of not being in the love of God in Christ or separated from his love as a believer that is stated through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Romans Romans chapter 8 verses 35 through 39 Now here it is it is who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life <coughs> excuse me neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth Now anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I should just close and let's go. I mean, just reading it, just as you read. Anyway, let's do some little explanation here. (laughs) So this passage in Romans shuts the door to any objection of security of the salvation of believers, especially, look at the phrase of verse 38. Look at that phrase in verse 38 where it says, no demons. Look at that. No demons. That's an important phrase in this argument. Now, why is that, you may ask? It is because of what demons do. Now, demons 
are capable of deception, as they can inspire false teachings, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Now see, as the Bible in Israel says, as the days come closer and closer, we don't know exactly when, but as the days close, come closer and closer, people will be so deceived. I mean, people can look at what is true and they still deny it. I mean, you just, you get the idea that God is working out something where people can, they're looking at it, they're seeing it, they hear it, it's true, but still they don't accept to be true. They're in high deception. What is doing that? God's judgment. And he uses all kinds of creature, uh, uh, creatures in his, uh, if we say, his armory to do his will. So that's why I hope a lot of people can go into deception. They look at truth, they hear truth. No matter what you say, they don't believe it. They believe that lie. Whatever that lie is, part of it is demons walking around the clock. To deceive people. Now, here is what demons do. They try to deceive people when it comes to uh, the word of God. So this is what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through Hypocritical liars. Now, I find that very interesting. You say, why? Well, because for some reason, people know somebody is hypocritical, and yet they still want to believe that person. How can you do that? The spirit of deception that God says He's going to bring on the world. A whole lot of people are in this country today and all over the world. Because they have become blinded. So they find these liars. They are teaching. They expand whatever it is. The people know they are hypocritical. Yet they want to believe it. That's a part of what demons do. Say hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You can make it a distinction between truth and falsehood. Now, deception inspired by demons will lead to what? Sin. Now, so, it was through Satan's deception that the fall into sin happened in the first place, as the Holy Spirit reminds us in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Second Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 It is But I'm afraid that just as Eve Was deceived by the serpent's cunning, Your minds may somehow Be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Coming. In other words, here's the thing. The enemy knows how to throw out these baits. And a lot of Christians bite. And he carries them away into deception. He knows how to do that. And that's why you can't afford to lay down your God as a believer. You must have your defenses up all the time. Now, what do you do? What do you fight with? Remember what we studied in Ephesians 6? The spiritual warfare, warfare that you go into. Take all those spiritual weapons. Remember the thought? The word. That's part of what you use. Without it, you're exposed to defeat. But with it, victory is assured. So, just as Satan 
could lead them believers to sin, so would demons. Thus, the thing demons could do with respect to a believer is to cause the believer to sin. I think you'll get that part. Remember what it says, even demons. But what do demons do? Cause a believer to sin. So, however, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul tells us that demons could not remove the believer from the love of God in Christ. That implies then that sin, let me say that slowly, cannot permanently remove us from the love of God in Christ. That is what I say, permanently. That's an important word, permanently. He can never permanently remove us from the love of, Christ, of God in Christ. In fact, that sin does not remove us from the love of God. It's in part the reason the Lord disciplines us, as stated in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Revelation Revelation chapter 3 verse 19 This is what it says This is our Lord speaking now Those whom I love I rebuke and they discipline So be earnest and repent Now this discipline by the Lord is so that we will now be condemned with the world, as the Holy Spirit tells us in a passage was, we started not too long ago in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. It is, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now, sin affects only our fellowship with God on this planet. That's that word I use when I say permanently. Sin affects our fellowship with God only on this planet, but not beyond this planet, since we are sure that what demons could do will not separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I think that when a believer supposes that sin will cause a person to lose the individual salvation, that that reveals a lack of understanding of the work of Christ on the cross. If you think your sin can cause you to lose your salvation, you don't understand what Christ actually did for you on the cross. That's the way I just put it, as simple as I can. Now, see, the Bible, if you read the epistles, the Old Testament, it constantly warns us about sin. Why is that? God doesn't, in any form of shape, in those sin. It does not. And so, whenever there is sin, he cannot have anything to do with anyone with it. But we have to make that distinction in our mind. When you are saved, your sins are permanently paid for. That means your eternal destiny is settled. But what goes in between then? Not settled. It all depends on whether you sin. If you sin, because he loves you, he just stares at you, doing nothing for you. That's the, way, the best way I can explain it. He's staring at you, don't do anything. Just like a, a parent might stare at a child that is displaced with, doesn't change the fact that, you know, still the child just stares and probably sometimes horrified that the child acted that way. Right? That doesn't change the fact. So that's what happens is, if you, as a believer, say, okay, I can live in sin. Okay, God said. You can live in misery, don't you? You've chosen to live in misery. So, I help you a little bit. 
And that's where the discipline comes. To help us get that pain. The misery that we want to live in, he helps us with pain, with judgment. And so, that's only for here. Because permanently, it's taken care of. Now so, see, the my thing is, if you think you are sin, we keep you from going to heaven after you are saved. Not before, now I'm talking about those who are saved. Then I'm saying that you don't really understand what Christ did for you on the cross. The, the scripture is clear that Jesus Christ came to this world to do what? Take away our sins, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. First John. I hold on to First John. First John. Chapter 3 verse 5 reads. But you know. That he appeared as Jesus Christ. So that he might take away our sins. Take away our sins. And in him is no sin. So to take away our sins means that Jesus Christ has taken away the penalty of sin because he atoned for it. Now to think that what has been taken away will cause a believer not to remain in the love of Christ or in the body of Christ eternally is to deny that the work of Christ was completed and accepted by God the Father. It's certainly, in my judgment, blasphemous to think that way. Now the death of Christ is sufficient to deal with the entire matter of sin that he sacrificed to care of the sins of the whole world. As stated, still in that first John, look at chapter 2, verse 2. First John, chapter 2, verse 2. First John, chapter 2, verse 2. It is, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now just think about it. That taking away sin. It's not just my sin, your sin. It's that of the whole world. That just tells you how powerful his death on the cross is. Really? Of course, someone may state though that to the fact that if Christ died then for the sins of the world, then... No one should or should go to the lake of fire or go to eternal suffering. Now truly, no one will spend eternity in the lake of fire for sin. Sometimes we Christians forget that. We get on our high, high moral horses. When I use that, I'm using it because we are very selective. Now these days, Christians, we've got to that point. My sin is better than your sin, so I ride higher. Because my sin, you know, the Bible doesn't talk too much about it. That's what they say. It talks much about yours. Sin is sin before God. There's no little sin. There's no big sin. Sin is sin. And so you cannot say, oh, you talk about the other one and leave the other one. No. Sin is sin. You talk about them comprehensively. No, no making excuses, as we are prone to do in these days. Oh, it's just that. No, it cannot just be that. It's a sin. Whatever that is, that is, happened to me. It's a sin. And of course, my point that no one is going to spend eternity in the lake of fire for sin implies that today we Christians are being too distracted 
by the immorality that we see, that we focus more on that immorality than we focus on the solution to the problem. In other words, we talk more about these failures and talk less about the Savior, one who died on the cross for our sins, knowing fully whether no one is spending eternity in the lake of fire because of sin. They are going there for one reason and one reason only. Rejection of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. No other reason. I mean, it doesn't matter what sin it is. Now, I mean, the scripture is clear, though, that it's because a person refused to believe in Christ, that such a person will spend eternity in the lake of fire, according to John chapter 3, verse 18. John, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 18. And hold on to John now. So the next passage will be in John, and after one passage, come back to John anyway. John 3, verse 18. Look at what it says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Look at the message. Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, that's the reason person goes to hell. That's it. We should be clear about that. It's not all these immoral things that go on. Yes, they are awful. But they are all nothing but symptoms of something. Let's get to the root. Let's go to where the cure is which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can talk about all the immoral behaviors in this country all we want. It's not going to change a thing. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ will change it. For some people, of course, not everyone. Now it is because of lack of faith in Christ that anyone then will be eternally lost. Now no wonder Jesus Christ himself declared to the Jews who did not believe in him, that they would die in their sins because they refused to believe in him as he conveyed in John chapter 8, verse 24. John John chapter 8, verse 24. John 8, verse 24 reads, I tell you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. See, if, if you don't believe in him, you die in your sins. If you believe in him, your sins are taken care of. So you get the point though is that it is not sin that sends anyone to hell. It is unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for our sins. Hence, when demons cause a believer to sin, that will not change the person's eternal relationship with God, only the person's temporal relationship with God. Remember why it's used the word permanent. Now I'm saying temporal. Now it's, that is time or earthly relationship. That's the only thing that will change. The permanent will never change. The temporal, yes. Furthermore, we know that Jesus Christ continues to plead for our sins. Those who are believers, even when we do not realize it. That is one of the beauty of what Christ did for us. That even when I don't realize I've sinned, he's already pleading for me. Now, don't get me wrong. If you continue and ignore him, he taps you in the head a little bit to remind you. I'm still your savior. You ignoring me? No, you can't ignore me. I can accept that. And you don't listen? He up it a little bit here and there. And eventually, if he, he gets to a point, he just takes you out. That's it. He doesn't change your permanent relationship with him. But one thing though is, all I'm saying is that Jesus Christ continues to be our high priest. So it, it is because of this that he pleads for us 
that he is able to save us completely. According to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Again he reads, Hebrews 7.25 reads, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always leads to intercede for them. Always. He is interceding for you and me as believers. Now, that doesn't mean, if we, again, if we ignore him, that we're going to go free. No, it doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. But eternally, that is secure. That's one the thing we're dealing with. The sense of security. So the point really I'm stressing then is that in the analogy of Apostle Paul that we're considering body parts as part of the body, the Apostle conveyed that because a body part makes the claim of not being a part of the body does not make it so. Hence, we contend that the sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, when he said, it will not for this reason cease to be part of the body. It is repeated in verse 16. That statement is an assurance of the security of believer's salvation since every believer is a part of the body of Christ and cannot be removed from the body. Of course, someone can say that I'm praising the analogy so far for the simple reason that a person could lose a part of the body and the body will still continue to function, implying that a believer could be removed from the body of Christ without affecting the body of Christ. Somebody can argue that way. Well, now such a notion, though, is false. As will uh, will be noted later in the Apostles' analogy, anyway. But meanwhile, though, let me refresh or kind of refute such a thought. Somebody who goes that way. Let me just refute it before we get to long time when the Apostle will deal with that. First, if a person loses a limb, that body ceases to be whole. If you lose a part of your arm, your body ceases to be whole. That's for fact. Or any part of your body. Now, so it is no longer whole. But when you talk about Christ, it's impossible. His body will always be whole. Therefore, there's no way you can lose any part of it. And still, you know, be, be a whole body. So a person, normally though, uh, lose a, a body part because of a violent action on the part of the human being or because of a disastrous event. That's how you lose a part of your body. Now, this cannot apply, though, to the body of Christ because of his promise that no one will violently or otherwise remove the believer from him or from his control, according to John chapter 10, verse 28. John chapter 10, verse 28. Now this is what he says. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now snatching involves force. But the Lord says that no one is capable of applying a force that would remove a believer from his hand or his control. The implication is that it is impossible to snatch a member of the body of Christ from his body. Impossible. Again, that's a way of assuring us that we are secured in him or in his body. In any event, a second fact to help you understand the importance of unity and diversity in the body of Christ is that no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. It's not going to happen. It's not impossible. That's what I'm saying. So this brings us then 
to the third fact that we will consider in our next study. But let me end by reminding you that the second responsibility that you have regarding the message, the main message, unity and diversity, are essential in the body of Christ, that is, true, uh, that is the church of Christ, is that you should focus on facts stated about members of the church of Christ. Focus on these facts. Now, two of these we have considered. The first, that the church consists of several members. And the second, no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. So, go home, meditate on this as part of that responsibility. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet. If you were to die now, you go straight to hell. Not because you have sinned in various ways that people sin, only because of one thing that will get up. You are listening. Hearing this because God loves you. He has a plan for you. That's why you're hearing it. He has created hell as a place of judgment of those who reject him. His love is so amazing. He demonstrated it in that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly left the glories of heaven to come to this planet to take your path, to take the penalty of all our sins. That's why John called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came, he did miracles, he healed, he taught, he did everything to prove one fact, that he is the Son of God. When he was finished with that, it was time for him to return to heaven. So they came to arrest him. And they asked them, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they all hid the floor or the ground. They gave them permission, which means if he didn't want to be arrested, they couldn't arrest him. So he willingly gave himself up because he was thinking about you. He knew that there's no way you can pay for your sins. You are incapable of doing it because to pay for it, he has to send it straight into hell. And you stay for all eternity trying to pay for sin. But he did that willingly for you. So on your behalf, when they finished torturing him, of all the torture, everything they did to him, he didn't complain, he didn't cry. And finally, they led him to Golgotha, where they nailed him, while still on the ground, tied him, nailed him. While they were driving those nails on him, the pain was no doubt cruciating. But the Son of God did not make any sound. Physical pain didn't cause him to make any sound. They lifted that up and sunk it. The pain got intensified. He still didn't complain, he didn't cry. But the last three hours on that cross, when my sin and the sins of the whole world, your sin included, were being judged on the Son of God that was so unbearable that he let out that cry, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may brought him. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, you have life through his name. If you believe that he came was crucified, buried, and rose again the third day for your forgiveness of sins. If you believe this, no matter how horrible your sins have been, they will be totally wiped out by his death on the cross. So believe in him, and you will receive eternal life. On the other hand, if you say, well, I can, I can wait. My friend, the next minute is not guaranteed to you. You don't know when you're going to leave this planet. This may be the last opportunity you have to believe and don't go to hell. So trust in him and you will escape eternal judgment. 
Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will cause us to recognize the diversity in your body to help us recognize how secure we are in you because of what your son Jesus Christ has done. So in every way, cause us to meditate on these things for your glory and honor. This is our request in Christ's name.